may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's my great privilege to be here with you this morning, sharing in this worship and preaching live. It's, if, if you'd have said to me 18 months ago that I'd be doing anything like this, I'd have thought you were crazy. But here we are. It is now a kind of new normal, so to speak. And so I'm speaking to you with a couple people sat to my, well, stood to my left, well, sat to my left, and of course, and the rest of you are watching this remotely in many parts of the world. I'm a cradled Methodist. I don't say that in order to, to sound important, just simply it's just a statement of fact. I was bought, born into and brought up in the Methodist church. And one of the earliest things I remember being taught in the church I grew up in, in Bradford, this is a Yorkshire accent. So although I've lived in Birmingham for 37 years, it's often said, often said that you can take the man out of Yorkshire, but you can't take Yorkshire out of the man. So I'm still a Yorkshire Chapel Methodist. And the thing I remember about growing up in that particular context was this key teaching from John Wesley, who, who was reputed to have said to the earliest Methodists, don't just go to those who need you, but go to those who need you the most. And in this text, what I want to do is just to look through the eyes of some of the key participants of this particular story in order to shed light on some of the key issues of the gospel, both then and now. Because one of the powers of Scripture is that as we open it, we don't just read stories that are thousands of years old. What we also see through the power of the Spirit is how the, Spirit, is how the Scriptures often act as a mirror. And therefore, as we read the Scriptures, what we see coming back to us our key emphasis of the gospel of our own society and the things that we may or may not have seen. So all of us know the text. All of us have seen and read this text, and some of you may have preached on it on many occasions. Jesus has just healed a woman, a young girl, and gets word from Jairus, a very important leader of the synagogue, who says... My daughter is unwell and calls Jesus to come and assist. And Jesus is on his way to attend to this important person in the synagogue. And on the way, in a large crowd, someone touches him. It struck me as I was preparing for this service that actually that simple act of being touched reads very different now in our current context of a pandemic where many of us have been social distancing and the whole point of our lives is not to touch anyone else and suddenly Jesus is touched. That has a very different resonance. Actually, a couple of days ago, I was on a bus in Birmingham for the first time in several months and I was sat on the seat and it was quite full and this woman came on and she sat next to me. And my instant reaction was to try and in Jamaican speak, they call it small up yourself. So I was trying to make myself small so I could distance myself from her. Now, I'm double vaxxed. I think she may have been, but I didn't ask her. The truth is I really wanted her to move. I was tempted to say, I'm sorry, but you can't sit here, get up and move. But it was a full bus and she was an older woman. And, and so at that moment, I suddenly realized that this sermon I was gonna preach is very different because in Jesus' day, 
long before vaccines, long before penicillin, long before all the things that we have taken for granted, if you got an infection, it would most likely kill you because there was nothing to prevent it, nothing to counteract it. And that's why within Judea, well, in Jewish culture, it was often a great provision was put both in the religious and in the cultural teaching about being ritually clean. It's not for nothing that when people came to Jesus and Jesus healed them, the first thing he would say is, go and present yourself to the synagogue. Go and present yourself to the leaders so that they can see that you are indeed now clean, and in being clean, that makes you part of the society again. Because as we know, leprosy, lepers at the time were shunned, put outside of the city, put outside in other communities because there was no way of curing them, and the danger is that they would spread contamination. That text now comes alive to me in a very different way because of our experiences over the last 18 months. We have tried to keep ourselves safe. We've tried to distance ourselves. And so, so you can imagine that when Jesus is amongst the throng, the assumption would be that everyone in that crowd would know the rules and would obey them. I.e., if you are not clean, then you do not turn up there because you'll make everyone else unclean. And so the woman being there is taking an enormous risk. She is breaking every social and cultural taboo in being there, and that shows you how desperate she is. And she's desperate because her condition puts her on the margins of society and excludes her from everyone else, excludes her from the temple, excludes her from her community, possibly excludes her from her very family. Don't just go to those who need you. Go to those who need you the most, says Wesley. And in this text, we see a really interesting dynamic. Jesus is on his way to the temple leader, synagogue leader, sorry, Jairus. And I'm sure if you were talking to his disciples, they would be excited. They would say, you know, Jesus, this is now your chance to show yourself how important you are to the powers that be. If you, go, if you go there and you do your thing, you know, if you, go th if you go there and you do what your reputation says, which is to do magic, miraculous healing, if you can pull this off, Jesus, imagine how good we are going to look. Imagine how important we are when you do something important for an important person. And we know that within our body politic, within our many of our countries, even in so-called stable democracies like our own, Rich people get favors done for them through lobbying, through having people with enough clout on their behalf to ensure that things get done for them. And I'm sure it was no different in, in, in the time of Jesus, that Jairus is probably assuming that Jesus should hurry up and get to me because I'm an important person. I've sent word out, and therefore Jesus should get to me because he expects and I guess then, as in now, the likes of Richard Branson and various other people, I'm not picking on them, by the way, I'm just saying that rich people expect, and they expect to get more and to get it first. It's an it's age-old adage. All of us are equal, but some are more equal than others. And I'm sure the disciples know it. So therefore, when Jesus stops and says, someone touched me, I'm sure every one of them are thinking, but what kind of foolish question are you asking, Jesus? 
Certainly when I was growing up, I was always taught never to ask a stupid question. If it's obvious, then don't bother asking. So when he says, who touched me? The answer is everybody's touching you. So what's your problem? Which, of course, tells us something about the dynamic then and now between Jesus and the people who follow him in his name. How often in history has the church got it wrong? That we have just not understood Jesus' actions. We have just not quite got his priorities. We spent time with him. We spent time in his company. He's given us his instructions and teachings, and we still don't get it. How often has the church been in a position of being a blockage to Jesus rather than an aid to get people to Jesus? I suspect that if you spoke to people in the crowd, some of them probably would have said, you know, so Jesus' disciples are those know-it-alls who think they're important. Because they follow him, they feel that they're more important than us. And of course, in other texts, we see how the disciples sometimes are arguing amongst themselves about who is more important than whom. But of course, we know that part of the glorious gospel to which we are the inheritors of is that Jesus' ways are not our ways. His ways are not human ways, and they do not conform to normal common-sense politics. So common sense politics does not say that if you're on the way to help a very important person, you stop in order to make space for a woman whose name we never hear, whose name we never know, whose condition says that she should not have even been there in the first place. And so when he says, who touched me? And there's lots of speculation as to whether Jesus really knew the answer to that or not. We'd have to get into that. What's important is that when he creates the space out of guilt, maybe shame, embarrassment, the woman trembling comes forward and says, actually, it's me who touched you. And it's interesting that she's healed before Jesus calls her. In the text, it says that the moment she touched him, she was miraculously healed. And so Jesus calls her forward and in doing so, I believe that what he's doing is recognizing her presence. He's recognizing her who spent her life on the margins, being separated from society because of her condition, because of the need for others to, for others to be ritually clean. That suddenly she's brought forward and Jesus acknowledges and says, Sister, you have been healed, now go away. And she goes away healed and restored, able now to participate in community. She's now brought from the outside into the middle, and she's affirmed. Jairus, meanwhile, is still waiting. But I believe that Jesus creates space for her because at that moment, her needs of being an unnamed woman in a patriarchal society who is ritually unclean, her needs are more important than Jairus at that moment. Don't just go to those who need you, go to those who need you the most. And so Jesus creates space. Imagine how different our world would be if our politicians in any particular context put the needs of the poor and the marginalized first instead of the powerful and the influential. Imagine how different it would be if our politicians said, we don't care how much money is coming in from lobbyists. We don't care how much money is coming in from the wealthy and the powerful. We will put that to one side and we will put first and foremost, those who are on the margins 
and those who do not have a voice, and in this case, not even a name. Don't just go to those who need you, go to those who need you the most. So in this text, what I believe we find is a model for the church, and I'm proud to say that part of our Wesleyan tradition has not just been about holiness, not just been about how we transform people's lives, how we help people to put God first and to see God as a, as a priority, how they live their lives. Because Wesley said, there's no holiness that is not social holiness. And so therefore, it's not just enough to transform people, we have to transform the structures and the cultures and the systems in which people's lives are lived and in which those are pushed to the margin. It's interesting that in the end, Jesus still goes on to Jairus, and although Jairus' daughter has died, he brings her back to life again, which then reminds me of this other famous quote that comes from, I think, the African-American culture, where they say that God may not come when you want him, but God always comes on time. So, my brothers and sisters, as I conclude, I want to exhort us to continue in the tradition that Wesley gave us, that very much is reflected in this text. Yes, we go to all people, we serve all people, but we prioritize those who are on the margins, those who are voiceless, those who are told that they don't matter, those who shouldn't even be there. Don't just go to those who need you. Go to those who need you the most. Amen.